Good morning, church family. Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we continue in Matthew chapter 6. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Good morning, church family. And Today's the Sermon on the Mount has this theme that's running through it. Jesus is confronting. He is exposing the presuppositions of his first century listener. And man, it is brutal. It's hard for us, I think, a little bit, just contextually, to get our mind around just what an attack is going on and exactly what all is happening with this, like, this incredible just confrontation around who the blessed are, who the redeemed are. They aren't who you think they are. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds the, righteous, the most righteous people on the planet, you're not the blessed. You're not the redeemed. In that very moment, they sit there confronted with the reality that their sin has separated them from God. And then he goes on and he says, woe to you. And he just continues to unpack this through this powerful sermon. And even last week, Paul's walking us through even the pursuits of worship. Even their pursuits of worship are broken, are similar to that of the Gentiles who reject the one true God. 
they fast and they pray and they give for selfish gain. And he's saying, that's not how you do this. And so all this has been building. And we're going to get a summary in this section. And Paul's led us into that. He's kind of set us up for that even last week. That we're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But I want to kind of take some time and set up a context because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to follow along with the theme that's kind of chasing through all of this rather than dive really specific into one of these examples or one of these areas. And so we're going to kind of stay in the clouds a little and we're going to hopefully I challenge some of our own presuppositions, some of our own worldviews, that we can see this, again, from a larger picture. So I, I, I want to help us get there mentally. It's early uh, for those of us who are here, and sometimes our minds are a little slow. So I want to help you out, all right? So I'm often critiqued because my emoji game is weak. Now, people say that about me, okay? My emoji game is weak. Now, my favorite emoji is the facepalm emoji. It, it's my favorite, and I like it so much. I mean, it, that's awesome. I mean, that works for everything in life, I think. Well, I believe that. So my response to pretty much everything is the facepalm emoji. Where would you like to go to dinner tonight? Facepalm emoji. It's 90% of my replies to everything. And because I'm an only child who's very selfish and self-centered, I know that it's probably frustrating to the recipient but it's entertaining to me. And at the end of the day, isn't that the purpose of emojis? Because let's be real, if we really wanted to communicate something, we would use words. Words. They're, they're really powerful tools. Can I remind you the last time people used pictures to communicate, they called us cavemen, right? So I'm just saying, I'm not calling it regression, I'm just saying it's a simple form of communication that allows the recipient to interpret the image however they want. So when my wife wants to know where we want to go to eat, and I send her the facepalm emoji, I expect her to realize that means let's go eat Thai. Why isn't that fair? See, we live in an era of slogans and emojis where our teaching and communication is reduced to personal interpretation. Relativ relativism, the idea that truth is subjective, it's not new. It's been growing for years. But what is new, what is present today and unprecedented is its impact, its deep influence on you and I. There is a devaluing of truth that is present around us and in us. It saturates us. Truth is boring. It's no longer worth it. It's not for me. There is a devaluing of what is unnatural to us in our broken sin nature, of the pursuit, the study, the examination, the learning is devalued and instead there is an emphasis on what is natural, what comes easy, pleasure, entertainment, comfort, affirmation. We don't even use words anymore. We just convey emotions and feelings and leave it up to the recipient. Let me give you an example in church context. 
We affirm slogans rather than pursue truth. So we show up this morning, and I give you this great theme. We work through it. We talk about, hey, we're going to love like Jesus. We pass out T-shirts in the back. Everybody's excited. I can talk about love like Jesus. We're going to love like Jesus. It's going to be awesome. We're like, woohoo! We play some songs. You're excited about it. I'm excited about it. Let's go love like Jesus. And everybody's like, woo, and we all leave. See, here's what happens. In this room, there's a hundred different definitions of what it means to love like Jesus. It's not unpacked, it's not taught, it's not pursued. See, what would happen in that setting is there, there's no real call to learn. No one has to learn anything. No one has to repent of anything, to turn from anything. No one has to change. You're just self-affirmed to your own definition of love and your own definition of Jesus, and we're all just turned loose to go about our way. Now, there's unity in that, in the fact that we're all doing something under the same slogan, but we're completely fractured because our definitions are all over the place. It's a false sense of unity. Shame on the churches for teaching this way. For celebrating engagement around various self-affirming yet radically different interpretations instead of rightly teaching the word to rebuke, to correct, and to train, as Paul calls a Timothy to do. Shame on us. But it's not just the church's issue. This is a cultural phenomenon. It is happening all around us. Let me give you an example. It's not just the church. One of my pet peeves recently over the last year is when I hear, and we hear it a lot, someone say, it's science, and then they just drop the mic and walk away as if the claim that it's science is the end of science. See, science is a branch of knowledge. It is a study that comes from a scientific method. Let me give you a definition of scientific method. Principles and procedures for the systematic pursuit of knowledge involving the recognition and formulation of a problem, the collection of data through observation and experiment, and the formation and testing of hypothesis. Science is a study, a systematic pursuit of knowledge. That pursuit isn't always perfect. You know why? Because we're not always perfect. It breaks. Consider over time the ridiculous things we have done and called it's science. But by the way, don't let it stress you out too much. But if it does, don't worry, you won't get an ulcer. Because after years of science and doctors telling us ulcers come from stress, In 2005, dude won the Nobel Prize because he discovered the bacterium that says, no, your ulcers come from this, not stress. So don't worry about it. You're good. Look, I'm teasing. I just want you to understand even science is facing this growing worldview that says the pursuit isn't worth it. It's against us in all facets. It's coming and we recognize that through science, imperfect as it may be, the pursuit has helped us by the grace of God advance in so many things. 
health, technology, medicine, chemistry. It doesn't matter. So many things. The pursuit has been valuable even in that. So shouting, it's science, pursuit over, doesn't help. It doesn't prescribe truth. It doesn't end the pursuit. See, in the purest form, science is that pursuit. But in the era of slogans, we don't want pursuit. We want to rival. We want to be done as quick as we can. We want to claim our slogan and move forward. That is saturating the way we think. And the church is going to be forced to live counter to that culture or to compromise to that culture. Let me give you an example of a compromise of that. We understand that we live under grace as Christians. Grace is the unmerited mercy and favor that comes from God. The recognition that we bring nothing to him. We bring no merit. We bring no righteousness. That God blesses us out of his mercy and out of grace. And so in the era of slogan, we are quick to say, I live under grace. And that's true if defined correctly, but it's dangerous if not. If grace is perverted to adopt the lies of the slogan that grace somehow is a contradiction to pursuit, that grace somehow justifies stopping the pursuit, that somehow it's pointless to pursue what cannot be earned, that you are free to live, free of conviction, free of burden, free of sacrificial effort, you've bought into a lie. Grace isn't at odds with pursuit. Our slogans can become so dangerous to us. See, the truth is the pursuit of Christ's likeness is an act of worship inseparable from faith. And Jesus is unpacking that right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Our big truth that Paul introduced to us last week, children of God seek his kingdom and righteousness first and foremost. Right there from Matthew 6, 33. And as we go, we're going to dive in and we're going to specifically chase this idea of seek. This idea of seek we're going to unpack it and we're going to see it played out in the verses that are leading up to this kind of conclusion statement. It is a powerful charge. Now, when we talk about seek, we are talking specifically about pursuit. It is a longing. It's a desire to obtain, to take hold of. Now, the Holy Spirit is all-knowing. He could have chosen a word to capture a rival, obtain, do, accomplish. That's not the word. The word is pursue. Because this side of eternity, we know we're not going to obtain. We know left to ourselves, we do not obtain. But we are called to pursue, to seek. 
And I want you to see how that plays out in a few big ideas. First, children of God pursue the king's kingdom. The king's kingdom. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Not on earth, but in heaven. See, here's the lie. Are you ready? Watch the lie. Here's the presupposition that's being confronted. Pursue this moment. Live for today. Live like there is no tomorrow. Make today your world, your kingdom, your focus. Now, when I say that, watch, we, I think if you're like me, in kind of my cynicism and my pride, there's usually a quick defense of why I, I'm not saturated in that. But I want you to think, of, I'm going to try to give you larger examples as we walk through this. Think about this, meditate on this for just a moment. We all have goals for our treasures on earth. Things you want to accomplish, ways you want to be, different, different things you want to do. You have bucket lists, all these goals for the treasures you pursue on this earth. We talk about them, we celebrate them. Here's a question for you Do you have goals? For treasures in heaven. How often are you talking about your treasure in heaven goal? When are you celebrating those? I'll give you a subtle way we try to facilitate that at our church for you is three names. It's setting goals, keeping conversations in front of us, talking about those things, pursuing those things together. See, here's the truth. My kingdom, your kingdom, this kingdom is ever vulnerable. It is doomed and temporary, but the kingdom of God is everlasting. And if we claim that in faith, we should not seek this kingdom, but the kingdom of God. The second big idea, we pursue the king's treasure as God's children. We pursue the king's treasure. Lay up for yourself treasures. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the lie. Pursue the things that matter to you. Here's the lie. You get to determine value and worth. You get to determine what is treasure. Your relationships, your experiences, your rationale, these are the things that assign value. That's a lie. The truth is, my kingdom is focused on fleeting experiences and meaningless accomplishments. But the kingdom of God is precious. Let, let me just say it really bluntly, okay? Just really forward and think on this statement. Your heart determines what you treasure, but not whether it is treasure or trash. Your heart determines what you treasure, but not whether it is treasure or trash. 
You and I do not get to decide value and worth. Let let me, again, bigger examples. I'm not using the easy, low-hanging fruit. I want us to think about it. I want you to see how you and I are guilty. Think about marriage for just a moment. Think about our marriages. In our marriages, man, the ones that are built on hobbies, personalities, physical attraction, these types of things, they're built on earthly treasures that shift. They don't have foundation. See, I'm married to Amy. She's awesome. She's incredible. And I get to experience a unique expression of Amy's value. But her value is not connected to her relation to me. I do not add to her value or worth. I do not take away from her value or worth. It is independent of me. It's independent of her being a wife or a mom. See, her value is anchored in her relationship to God. Her value, her worth, is defined by the creator, not me. And so if I'm going to celebrate her value and her worth, If I build the celebration around me and my relationship to her, not only is that just selfish, if you really think about it, it's shallow. There is a depth of her value and her worth that is connected to being an image bearer, all eternity anchored as a child of God, a redeemed picture of the the redemptive work of Jesus, all found in her That's her value and her worth. And so my charge to love her because of her value and worth would be no different than any of you. You say, well, that doesn't make her feel very special. Think about this statement for just a minute. This is hard. If I'm trying to make her feel special outside of her value and worth in God, Watch, understand those things are temporary. Pursue them. Man, make your spouse, make your kids celebrate the day-to-day things. Live life with them. But when we start putting our identity in those things, those are shallow things. That's making earthly treasure things. Lead one another, edify one another to something so much more. Don't you see how we get caught up in that kind of thing? Think of how many times you've heard somebody who, man, they're starting to work out, they're getting in shape, they're eating something, and they'll say, man, I just feel so more, such more, such more self-confidence. My ego's in such a better place. That's good. But watch, if your motive for working out, for pursuing physical health, is solely strapped into changing your confidence, your ego? Here's a different idea. What if you put the same pursuit, the same effort into the word of God around his truth, his kingdom, and let that shape your ego and your self-confidence? Not saying one's bad, I'm saying one is temporary and one is everlasting. And at the end of the day, here's what we really believe. Let's be honest. We have more faith in the workout, changing our self-confidence because of the way we look 
than getting in the word and the truth of God's word changing our self-confidence and our ego. Think about the worship wars and all the people who drag through and they say, you know what, I just, I struggle, I can't worship to that style of music. You may not like it, but God is great and he's worthy to be praised, whether it's with a triangle or a band or an organ, who cares? He is worthy. Your style of music, your preference, it's temporary. The other is everlasting. See, these things that we're talking about, they're not for people out there. They're for me. They're convicting for me. And so we pursue the king's treasure. And as I thought through that this week and I thought through these examples, I realized how much I treasure the things of the world. Forgive me, Father. Give me an eternal perspective. Third, we pursue the king's revelation. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. The light in you is darkness. See, what Jesus is talking about here is revelation. The light of sight enters through our eyes. It's how we see. If the eye is healthy, you can see. The revelation of light makes all things visible to you. But if the eye is bad, you are blind. You do not see. There's darkness in you. And if you are blind, what can you see? Here's the idea. If you are broken in sin, separated in darkness, what righteousness can you discern? Here's the lie. Pursue what seems right to you. Pursue what seems right to you. There's a way that seems right to a man. Follow your heart. That's the lie. The truth is my kingdom is saturated in lies and darkness. The kingdom of God is perfect and true. Proverbs 14, 12. God says there is a way that seems right to a man. And the end of it, therefore, is death. See, I cannot trust my broken eyes to discern righteousness left to myself. So I seek, I pursue God's revelation. He has given us a true revelation of who he is and who he has called us to be. To do otherwise is to deem that there is some light within me. There's some righteousness within me. There's some vision in me not in the scriptures, in me that allows me to discern and to reveal. Pursue the king's revelation. Number four, pursue the king's authority. No one can serve two masters for he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. No, no one can serve two masters. Here's the lie. Pursue 
as one who is in, in, as one who is independent, as one who is free. See, God and money here is the example. It's really not the point. It's the example. It, it's just money is the way we value treasure so much on this earth. It's the pursuit of accomplishment, the pursuit of independence. If we have money, we feel the illusion of being independent. We don't need. We're not sitting there praying as we were instructed in the Lord's Prayer for this daily bread. Why? Because we feel like we can buy our own stinking bread, right? Here's the context. You can't serve both. You can't live for the treasures of this world and live for the treasures of heaven at the same time. It's incompatible. Why? Because here's the truth. My kingdom is enslaved to sin. And the kingdom of God is enslaved to righteousness. What does that mean? Left to myself, I have no righteousness. I am a slave to sin. Darkness saturates me. Left to myself. The standard of the presence of God is holiness, perfection. I enter into his presence and am in right standing with him, not because of my sin, but because of Jesus' righteousness in full. In Christ, I am enslaved, watch this, to the righteousness of Jesus. That's a good thing, to be owned by the righteousness of Jesus. Don't don't let your pride and somehow this illusion of independence go, well, I don't want to be a slave, I'm a child, and I'm free. Now listen, that's true too, and that works in adoption terminology, and that's used in the scriptures. But Paul also says you are a slave to righteousness. Here's the point, you're owned by it. It's not yours, it's Christ, and it's given to you, and it won't change. The righteousness of Jesus becomes our master. Just as we are enslaved to sin, we are now enslaved to it. Luke 17 gives just a beautiful picture of this in the master and the servant. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago with our students. It's a great passage to go back and look at. But we are 100% bought and purchased owned by Christ in the kingdom of heaven. He is our master. And so to go back and to treasure anything less is incompatible. And so children of God pursue the king's authority. Number five, we pursue the king's provision. As you walk through this next section, you see that your heavenly father is the one who feeds, the one who clothes, and the one who cares. Here's the lie. Pursue your needs first. Think about this. Think about how anxious you and I are around the circumstances of our life and how anxious we are to chase the illusion of independence. One of the things I think about personally quite often is if I could just be content with the possessions of 75 years ago, I could live like a king for centuries past. But I'm not. I mean, I want to press the button 
and my car window go, I don't want to roll it. Who wants to do that? I mean, I, I want to have a car, not a horse. Who wants a horse, right? You, you begin to think through all these types of things. I'm not saying you need to abandon all your stuff in that way. I'm just wrestling with this idea inside of me how anxious I am to pursue these things. For the illusion of independence, I think if I just get, if I just get my money right, then I won't have these worries. Here's the truth. My kingdom is anxious and self-concerned. The kingdom of God is sufficient. It is sufficient. I want you to notice a couple of things in this section. First, notice these are necessities. We're talking about food. We're talking about clothing. Give us this day our daily bread. Your life is sustained by God. You believe that in faith. When you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, when you understand he is the son of the one true God, you understand all that's kind of wrapped in and you go to him and acknowledge you are God. He is sustainer. Every breath, an active choice by a sustaining creator to give you in mercy and blessing. Every provision comes from him our daily life. The second thing to think about is anxiety. I want to chase this for just a second. Anxiety is a faith issue that's combated by truth. Notice in this, Jesus says, look. He says, consider. These are meditation terms. Look, consider, think on these things. In light of who God is as he's revealed himself, and in light of what you see, look, consider, meditate. Here's how we do this at Tri-Cities all the time. There is a big truth clearly prescribed in scripture. It's the big truth. There are implications of that truth. We call those big ideas. If this is true, it has an effect, has meaning. It calls us to apply, listen, some of you really struggle with anxiety. Anxiety may be physical, it may be an emotional reality for you, but it shouldn't be your mental pursuit. You, you may have to fight it your whole life. It may never go away. Your physical heart rate may change. The nervousness may come. But the truths you claim in that moment, the truths you seek, you pursue, those truths can guide you. In other words, don't live by the emotions of your anxiety, but aim your life by the truths, even if you don't feel them, the very truths from the word of God. And so consider, consider, look, study, pursue God's word so that the truths of God's word can anchor you into something so much deeper than your anxiety. Number six, pursue the king's righteousness. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, verse 32. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's the lie. Pursue righteousness from within. 
Pursue righteousness in your kingdom. Measure it by your kingdom. See, those who deny God, the Gentiles, they seek righteousness within their kingdom. They seek righteousness within themselves. They seek treasures and provisions from this world for this world. Don't be like them. Here's the truth. My kingdom is at war with God's kingdom. Paul describes this to the Romans. My kingdom is at war with God's kingdom. But the kingdom of God is holy, perfect, and righteousness is only found in Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If we claim in faith that Jesus is the only source of righteousness and that his kingdom defines all value and all worth, all the treasure, then that faith in us compels us to pursue. We will not be perfect. We will fall. We will not even pursue of our own merit. It will be the work of the Spirit in us. But we will pursue. We will seek. But what happens when you fall? What happens when you're like, man, I'm just on the struggle bus? Finally, last big idea, rest in the king. Rest in the king. It's not here explicitly in this passage, but I just want to make sure you hear it. Do not be anxious. Why? Because you've got it controlled in this world? No, because this world is subject to the kingdom of God. And there is a king who reigns, who intercedes for us, who cares for us, who loves us, whose righteousness we are enslaved to. And he will never let us go. And so while your pursuit may be bumpy, while the transformation into Christ-likeness may be back and forth and brutal and filled with suffering and hardship, while all those things may be true, your position in Christ is secure, it's eternal, it does not change. Why? Because of something you are or something you do? No, but because of who he is, we belong to the king of the kingdom of God. Know that, rest in that, and let that truth guide you because there is a lie around us that says rest is found within the circumstances of my kingdom. If I just had these earthly treasures, I'd be fulfilled. But the truth is my kingdom is uncertain and the kingdom of God is absolute. You have no worries if you are in Christ. None. Your position is firm in him. And as the team comes up to lead us in a song of response, I want to go back to something that's recorded in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you. Be careful. Understand, you do not have the treasure of God's righteousness. 
And there is nothing in this world that can deliver that. You can gain the whole world, but you will not have the righteousness of God, which means you will not be in right standing with the creator and sustainer of all life. And you will face the fullness of his wrath as his enemy. But in his mercy, in his grace, he loved you so much that he sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sin so that through faith, a faith that is inseparable from repentance, turning, pursuit, through faith in him, you might become the blessed, the redeemed, based on the righteousness of Jesus. And as we sing that song, I wanna challenge you. Maybe for the first time in your life, maybe at home as you're watching the worship guy, pray and proclaim Jesus is God. He is my savior. You give him your sin and all your baggage and let him give you his righteousness. Call him Lord and understand that Jesus is better. When the castles on the sand crumble, there is no other who is sure. Jesus is better. He is the eternal, steady rock, unshakable, unmovable. Seek his kingdom and seek his righteousness. Would you stand? Would you continue in an attitude of worship, in an attitude of response and sing?